Michael Yo. The Michael Yo Show. Celebrities. To be honest, I don't like male strippers. Pop culture. And comedy. That's what I'm trying to do is streamline this whole thing into a cult. Plus, 10 things you should know with Yo. The Michael Yo Show starts now. 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 Welcome to the show. It is Michael Yo. Make sure you subscribe. You rate and review. I know, I know you hate hearing that, but I'm doing this to pay the bills, people. I got to feed my baby. And you know I got another one on the way. Live inside the studio right now. I am so excited. I absolutely love her. She's a legend in comedy. She's with all the greats. Please welcome Margaret Cho. Now, you have a podcast as well, right? And tell everybody the name so they can... It's called uh, The Margaret Cho, and it's interviews with people you know and people you should know. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's on, you can get it on I iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. How do you how do you like being on the other side, the one interviewing people? I love it. Do you really? What do you yeah. love about it? I think that it's like you know, because um, I, I really do get into people. Like I get really interested in and in how they are and how they work, especially like people who are creative and I love their work. You know, so it's nice to know and it's nice to know how they get there and and um, I always appreciate you know just the way that people are. You know, like I I think it's weird when you're a comic. And, you know, so much of it is sort of on performance. But when you can kind of delve in and figure out somebody else's process, I think it's really fascinating and it's fun. How do you, uh, like, what started you in comedy? Like, I want to start from the beginning Mm -hmm. and really, like, go through your life story to how you got here. How did you start in comedy? How old were you? I was uh, 14 and I was in um, these theater classes where our teacher was uh, signing us up for open mics. And it was kind of inappropriate, but also <laughs> kind of amazing, too. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's, I, I, mean, I think about it now, and I think, like, gosh, we had so much freedom in the 80s to do whatever we want as kids. A lot. I don't know why. How old were you? I was like 14 when 14. I, was, I was starting. And, and a teacher just signed you up for open yeah, mic. Yeah, because we were doing like comedy sketches in class. And um, so I just started high school and it was just like this thing. And then um, she started to sign us up at this place called The Other Cafe in San Francisco, which in the 80s, comedy was really big in San Francisco. And so people like um, Dana Carvey were performing there on weeknights. You could go see um, Robin Williams or... Bobcat there. And so on the Mondays and Tuesday nights there, they would have the open mic. So she signed us up and it was me and um, Sam Rockwell. What what type of class was it? Was this a stand-up class or was it a high school class? It was an improv and theater class, but it was like we we weren't really even doing stand-up yet. We were doing like sketches. Sketches. Okay. So um, I, I went up with Sam Rockwell who uh, is a famous actor now. Yeah. But, but that back then, we were just high school kids. <laughs> and we were doing these sketches, which I can't even remember what we were doing. I, I, can't, I, I, I couldn't even imagine being in a comedy duo now either. Ugh. But uh, it was fun then, and um, I stuck with it. Um, he ended up moving to New York with his mom and, of course, becoming a very famous actor. Famous actor. Yeah. How, how, how was it the first time you went up? Did you know you loved it the first time you went up? Well, I didn't have a sense of it because it was, like, not even stand-up, and it was, like, doing this with this other kid. But people loved us right away because we were, like, so young that you got, you know, you they were like, oh, my God, that's so adorable. And then, um, you know, later on when I did stand-up on myself, when it was, like, real stand-up, I was probably, like, 15, then it was more like... Um, People were excited to hear what I had to say because there was nobody else like me. There were no Asian Americans, you know, there were no young people like that. So that's what 
made it different. And being from San Francisco, at that time, it was still diverse, though, San Francisco, wasn't it, or no? Well, there was diversity in that there were definitely, there was a Chinatown. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There was a Chinatown. Yep. Um, Then in my neighborhood, there was like, it was all Chinese people and Irish people. So they would have these sort of big sort of West Side Story things where the young Irish men would like be romancing the young Chinese girls. And nobody liked it. None of the families liked it. And they were really <laughs> racist about each other. And it was really scary. But um, yeah, it was diverse, but not necessarily in the entertainment world. And, and stand-up comedy was still very much the entertainment world. So you had a few, a few black people, uh, nobody, just white men, a couple of women, nobody else really, no Asians, nothing like that. Was it hard for you to get stage time? Because if it was dominated by like males and mm-hmm. you know white men... Or were you sort of that thing, like, you could dangle, oh, I'm the Asian girl, you want me on your show? (laughs) Well, it was so different, and I was really, um, I was really into it, and I was really excited, and I I think that my enthusiasm kind of got me farther than, you know, anything else, just because I was so young, and I was, like, so into it, you know, and I was, like, around all these adults, and it was just seemed so grown up. And uh, so it, it, I, it, I don't know how, but I managed to get on a lot of shows. Um, I think because I just kept bothering people until I, they let me on. Oh, okay. So you yeah. were a hounder. Like I was like, a real pest. Yeah. But then, um, you know, but I was like taking all the time that I would, would have been at school. You know, I wasn't really paying any, attention, paying any attention to school at all. I just wanted to be a stand-up. Like, I just was like, this is going to be my job. Back then to now, what was your writing process? Um, I would just try to like figure it out. Like I would write out these jokes and then try to make make it make sense. And then if something didn't work, then I would cross that out and then try something and put something else in its place. Um, some things were not, I don't know why they didn't work. And some things that just, I had a hard time explaining, you know, um, it's that process of trying to figure out what it is when you tell a joke, like what it's supposed to do, like what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to tell it. It's still something that I kind of struggle with, you know? It's like that mystery of like, how do we make this good? How, how, uh, well, where do you actually write your comedy? Do you write it in a certain place, like every morning or every couple of days do you go to a room, a certain room, or you just like, wherever you are, an idea hits you, you'll start writing it down? Yeah, it's not that organized. I mean, I think it's just (laughs) like wherever, where, you know, a lot of it is like on, um, little pieces of paper all over the place or like in journals. Like in the 90s, you had to have, like, go on stage with a journal or else. That was the thing to do? (laughs) You had to look really unprepared. Like, there was something about the 90s that was like, we love the people who were, like, not prepared, who didn't really know what they were doing, because it kind of matched the vibe of the time, because the vibe was, like, grunge, and, like, you know, that look. It's kind of like, I just woke up, and I'm here, let me see what I have in my notebook type of thing. Yeah, like, I'm such a genius that the least amount of effort will pay off so big and you know there were people that were very good at kind of doing that although their comedy really required a lot of work like Mitch Hedberg is the perfect like 90s comedian who you would think that kind of stuff is effortless but really you know those jokes are genius and they're each take about 10 seconds. So think about all of the jokes that he would have to write. I know. It's insane. You know? Like, it's exhausting even thinking about it. Yeah, like, it's I'm incredible. A, like, I'm a storyteller. I know a lot of... Like, comedy to me seems like... There are comics like that still, but mm-hmm. it moves... 
I think because of reality television and social media, everybody wants to hear like your real stories now. Yeah, so yeah. comedy's kind of moving towards that direction. And, I think so. And every comedian I watched growing up, like the Eddie Murphys and things mm-hmm. like that, they told real stories as well. Yeah. Which you do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that storytelling for me is always, you know, that that's what I love because that's also where you can actually fit a lot of jokes like during a story. So that that to me is like, what I appreciate is when comics have a lot of jokes and they're all in there. You know, that's to my, to my like understanding, that's like the goal is just to have as many jokes as you can. So when you, when was the first time you bombed on stage? Um, and I how think, was it? Uh, probably very early on, like the, like probably the third or fourth time that I did it. And it was so terrible, but it was like, um, mostly cause I was doing it every day. So I had a real large variety of experience. So being, being bad didn't discourage me as much. I think bombing when you're like 10 years in or 15 years in, then it gets like, gets to your, your heart. You know, because you're not doing it as often. You're making pretty good money. You're kind of like used to doing well. And then when it doesn't go well, it's really distressing. Has that happened to you recently? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I had a terrible show a couple of weeks ago and I mean, it was not a big deal cause it was just sort of like this little place, uh, you know, in town and, and you know, sometimes I'll really bomb, um, uh, at the, in the original room at the comedy store <laughs> because yeah. you can't, there's something about that room where it's really hard to hear. <laughs> what is it about that? It's, I don't know. Like that. I've been up in that room a couple of times and mm-hmm. it's a very different room. Mm-hmm. It's something about that. I don't know if it's because of dark, if it soaks up sound. I don't know. Well, but it's I, different. I think that the, the legend goes, they used to kill people in there. Mm-hmm. And so it's soundproof. So you are absorbing all of the laughter into the walls because the, the, uh, all of the, um, you know, insulation, originally was put there so that because it was Ciro's it was a mob hangout and they would not they would like you know kill people in that room they would I, I didn't know that about yeah, the comedy kill, store they, that, that's why it's super haunted that's what they say Do, so, have you met any ghosts or had any not, scary encounters there oh I have I had some scary encounters but no ghosts <laughs> <laughs> no ghosts no ghosts to speak of but um, yeah, I, I do. I do love that room because when you do well, you're you're doing really really well. But I think that there's something about it that when you think you're bombing too, and because you can't hear the laughs, you make yourself bomb because you're so used to like the process, or you have to comment on it or whatever. But I think it's not like people bomb in there. It's just that the the insulation absorbs the laughter. You can't hear as well. When did you feel that okay, I'm funny and I can do this for a profession? Um, I think that was probably. Early on, like, I go, oh, oh, because I was, like, a shy kid, so I never realized that I was, like, funny. I never was, like, funny for my friends or my family or anything like that. So, um, but the first couple times doing stand-up or, like, being in class and, you know, doing improv or whatever, I was like, oh, I think this is kind of, like, how you are funny. Like, if you do this and make these faces and say these things, maybe that's funny. I don't know. There was something about it that kind of people told me that I was, and I didn't feel it until I kind of later did. Did your mom endorse you on it? Did she like it or no? No. Well, not at first. Now she does. Yeah. Now she's really excited about it. But, you know, when, when I was starting, they were like so, they didn't understand. Like, all they knew that was that I was not going to school. <laughs> and I was not yeah. a good student. And I was not uh, doing all of the things that I should have been doing, which is like really, you know, it's hard. You know, we're Korean, so we have this sort of idea of like how we should behave or how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act. And school is very important. So I didn't, I didn't have any of that. Do you feel that Koreans are coming around now as being supporting 
like people that are Korean that are actually making it yeah, in America. So. You think so? I think so. Yeah. And yeah. Why, what, why, what is the reason for hesitation? I'm half Korean, my mom and, you know, but it seems like there was a hesitation five, six, 10 years ago to really accept if somebody told comedy and was Korean. Well, I, it was because I think that they didn't think that we were going to stay here for that long. Like Korean mentality is like, we're going to come here and make that money and go back to the, the mothership. Like they're <laughs> not going to be here for that long. So they were always like kind of mad at somebody who were so, sort of like famous. That means they were like putting down roots. It's like, you're going to make it so that we have to stay here or something. I think it's like they don't want to assimilate fully because they're always one foot back to Korea. They always mm-hmm. want to go back to Korea. I'm like, Korea's great, but I, I mean, I don't know why you would want to go back so readily. You know, why can't you make this your home too? But I have that thing of like, where they just had a feeling like they didn't want to completely assimilate. That there was something, there's some resistance about Koreans to want to fully become American in the way that Chinese people or Japanese people did. Got you. You know, because they have like second, third generations here now. But more than that, I feel that like, well, Filipinos, if you're mm-hmm. big, like they support you. I feel yeah. like Koreans, yeah. they don't do that. Yeah, it's different because Korean culture also is very cutthroat. I think because there's like such a hugely um, like competitive like thing to get into like universities, like either Seoul University or Yonsei. And if you don't get into those schools, it's like your life is over. So that kind of mentality is like we're not going to um, try to be exceptional or like applaud those who are exceptional because it's like it's going to like lessen our chances it's a weird thing that filters down into like our culture but it doesn't serve us well i think it's something that like we have to look at well i think that's also true for japan and china they all have the same kind of mentality where um in the philippines i think it's a little bit different i think that they have much more of a supportive more homey family culture that's really warm you know that that i think that we don't necessarily have i feel um you know everyone knows this but you were the first asian uh female with Mm a uh sitcom Mm -hmm. uh in america which is which is huge i mean like it it was the first of its kind uh it didn't work out but when you look back at it i mean it worked out for you because you're still around yeah but and you got the shot to Mm -hmm. me if you get the shot Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it did some good. Yeah. If you could go back in time and change some things you did in that whole process, what would you have changed? Well, I probably, I, I what I would have done is I uh, should have gone um, cable initially. You know, like I should have actually taken the uh, show that I wanted to do that was more out of my stand-up as opposed to the sort of Disney route, which I did. I went the Disney route Mm -hmm. and you know, was produced by Disney. I went for the most money where I should have (laughs) gone for the most freedom. And so that's what I should have done is like gone back and gone around and cable wasn't a thing then, you know, cable hadn't emerged at all yet. So we were still in a very like in, you know, initial stages. I mean, they existed because HBO is where you would see your comedy specials and everything, but they had so much freedom. Like those pay cable stations had, all of this freedom to do Did you get an whatever. offer from HBO at the time? I think, your- yeah. I mean, it was something that was presented, but at the time, like, the management that I had, uh, you know, everything was all put in place to, like, make this a big network show. There was just no, there was no way. They, that, were, they weren't going to do it for small money. Nobody was yeah. going to allow that. But if I, I think if I had, then I would have made the show that I wanted. But it's almost like, but then would it have gone as far as it did, you know, because so many people saw it because it was a network show. And it was the first time a lot of people saw Asian Americans on TV, and it inspired a lot of people. So even though the show only lasted 
22 episodes. It still um, had an impact in how it affected the way that people were going to like go off and be in showbiz, which I think is cool. With stand-up, you get the reaction right after you get off stage. So you know if you did well, well or not. Yeah. Was it stressful waiting a whole night for those ratings in the morning? Yeah, it was stressful. It was stressful, right? Because it was very meaningful and you needed to know right away. I mean, nowadays I think it's a little bit different the way that television is. And you, you kind of know, I think, from like engagement on social media if people are watching or whatever. It's a weird thing like now. But then it was very important. Did you... Did you, on the first time you had your TV show, were you kind of like just a yes person? Absolutely, I, yeah. Because yeah. I just didn't, I thought I was an employee. I had no concept of being a star. Like, I didn't know what that was. And and then, the you know, everybody around me ha- were invested in keeping me in that employee mindset. Like, you're just an employee. But I wasn't, but I didn't know any better. Did you write on the show? Mm-mm. So, no. Yeah. See, that was a lot of things. Like, I just sort of gave up because I didn't really know. You know, and like... I didn't know how to go about it. I was really young and also I was just scared. Okay. Okay. And with the explosion of crazy rich Asians, mm-hmm. you know, now it, it, it was an amazing movie, first of all. Yeah. And now like Asians are hot, you and know, like they're it's getting, great. they're getting roles. They're everywhere. Yeah. You know, how, did, when you saw the movie, did you love the movie? And, and how did you feel walking out that theater? I was so excited and I was so moved and it just was really it was thrilling, you know, and I thought like, well, this is like a big change. But then I think, um, you know, it took so much time to make that happen. Like, it seems like this should have been happening all this time. But, you know, it just took so long. But it was I was really grateful for it. And it was just a familiar kind of homey feeling because I know everyone. So that was also great, too. It's like all my friends. And and it was so it was so exciting. What's the worst part of the industry to you? I think it's like that constant thing of like, am I going to be here still? Like, you know, like, (laughs) am I going to be here still? Like, and then that still kind of comes up, even though like you're, you know, you're able to like work and do all these things. Um, but yeah, it's that kind of thing of like, can I still keep doing this? But what's great is comedians can. Oh yeah, you got your own career. You can yeah. tour. Did you ever think about leaving LA and just living somewhere else and just touring? Yeah, yeah, that would be cool too. I mean, where would you I live? Think, I think like I always think about going back to San Francisco. I did leave. I it had like different like living situations in San Francisco up until about three years ago. Um, I always love it there, and it's kind of. That's like, but you gotta be really, be really, be rich to live in San Francisco. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're really gonna live there. You gotta be really, you know, you need that like Sean Penn money or you know that. Is kind it of, more expensive than LA? Oh yeah. Oh my god. Oh yeah, it's crazy. Oh. It's not even like it's like way more than it's like you know Silicon Valley money. That's like so you know crazy and um, but you know I I do I do really enjoy it. There's something about it that is really calling to me. So maybe I'll go back there at some point, but. Um, another thing, like some people, a lot of, a lot of people I know, like move to like Nashville or move to like, um, you know, somewhere in North Carolina. So it's in the middle. So they'll kind of be able to go either way. I love Nashville. Have Have you been? Mm -hmm. Oh, I could totally yeah. see myself living there. Yeah. But now prices are going up there. And I know. Like crazy, but not as bad as San Francisco, but they're yeah. getting up there. But it's also uh, it's also nice because if you're touring, then you can go either way. Yeah. If you're right in the middle and it's a hub, it's kind of kind of amazing and easy. What do you think about the craziness going in the going on in the world today with, you know, all these mass shootings? I know this is a total uh, so, right turn, but but I know yeah. you're a big advocate about that and you like to speak about yeah. uh, things like that. It's just it's it's Awful. it's weird to be in this world today, isn't it's it? It's scary. 
I mean, it's like a thing of like, because I'm not, uh, I, I don't I don't have any guns. I don't know anybody who does, but it's like, it, it, you know, to me, it just, just doesn't make sense to have them at all. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, look at, like Australia had, you know, mass shootings and then they just got rid of it all. You know, and like, they just, if you get rid of them, then nobody has them, then it's fine. But for some reason here, people get really like attached to that. Well, it's a thing where I feel like, if you're pro-gun, look, I'm from Texas. People have guns. But you don't need the assault weapons. Like, and you yeah, can't what? use it and you can't use it for hunting. Yeah. Like if you using that gun to hunt, you're a terrible hunter. Yeah. Like you're awful. And yeah. you shouldn't have that much those are weapons of war and you shouldn't have them mm-hmm. in your hands. I, it's just surprising that we live in a country. It's the best country in the world, but also at the same time, it's like we can't get our heads wrapped around hey, these assault weapons and different guns are not good yeah. for people, no matter how much evidence you get, and no it's matter crazy. how much bloodshed. It's crazy. And it's like you just don't know what people are capable of doing. And, I, you know, like all of these shootings, it's like, why? Why do we still have these guns? And it's not like – and there's – I think that this idea that, oh, well, I want to have a gun because when these shooting happens, I want to be able to take down the shooter – and it's like, That's you're, a not gonna be, you're not going to be a hero. You know, it's just like, just, you know, like I, I'm like, I, I know that I would never be able to like, just find it in my purse. Like, you know, cause I have so much stuff all the time. Like, it's just like, there's so many, like so much room for accidents there. You can't rely on yourself to be some kind of vigilante hero. Like when they were saying, well, you want to stop a gun, you got to have a gun. I was like, oh, that just creates so. more guns, man. It just makes it worse. But you know, people have their, I think what it is is that everybody feels unsafe and that everybody just wants to cope and their, their means of coping is trying to somehow be more armed, you know? And so it's just a mentality yeah. that is, uh, it's hard to get around, but it's also like, the, we all can agree the world is scary. It's scary. It is scary. Like, I am pro-gun, but pro-gun for people that are responsible, you know? Yeah. And, and I yeah. hate, and I hate that, I hate the thing where they're always blaming mental illness, where mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's racist. It's and, racism, yeah. And racism, they're, I mean, they're making people say, oh, if they're racist, they're mentally ill. No, I know, I grew up with racist people that weren't mentally ill right. at all. Yeah. And don't lump those together. That's right. what upsets me. Yeah, yeah, it's not, they're, they're not the same thing. It's like, you know, uh, and they wouldn't um, consider themselves mentally ill. And it's not, um, it is racism. It yeah. is like hardcore crazy racism that is supported by um, all of these crazy people who are really irresponsible, you know, like just spreading these lies, including Donald Trump. You know, he's, he's, he's in that too. You know, it's, it's not, it's not right. You know, all this stuff, but it's kind of, it's interesting how much like our phones and how we like engage with the um, internet really uh, forms our worldview. Because if you like something on like a social media, then only those sorts of things will be filtered to you. It's just going to feed you that all day long. Yeah. And so it's, it's really hard to see other people's perspective on anything. When, um, like when you see news articles and when you, when you, uh, check out the news, what is, what is the one thing? Like, are you, are you a CNN person? Are you an MSNBC person? Like, where do you get your news and where do you get your, or I stopped watching news cause I couldn't watch it's, it. I have yeah. to read it. It's are hard. you the type of person like that now? 
Well, I kind of do a couple of things. I um, I usually go, will go for, you know what? I usually will go for TMZ because that's the fastest. Yeah. Oddly, they are actually the most legit. Like, they are really fast. They are pretty, like, pretty amazing, like, how they get things, like, the second it happens. TMZ gets it first. I don't know how they do it, but they are really, really fast. Um, and it's kind of, it's a little neutral. It's not as biased. And then... Uh, I love CNN too. I think that like I do a lot on Reddit. But okay. Reddit, you know, like I, I will go into these communities that I really like really kind of very conservative ones that I really get me really angry and like I don't understand. <laughs> but I still want to keep on you looking. You got to know both sides. I just want to look and see. Um, but yeah, Reddit is kind of, I, I do like the way that I get a lot of news through there. So it seems, it seems like I can pick and choose and like I can look at things that are maybe not always my opinion. Now... I know when you were younger, when I was younger, you probably went through a lot of racism growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah. But do you still get it today? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I think it's now it's a little more of a subtle thing. Um, you know, up until Crazy Rich Asians, it was like just invisibility and not seeing Asian Americans anywhere, anywhere for anything. You know, and then and then now I think now there's more of an awareness that this has to happen, like. This sort of like we have fewer uh, instances of like whitewashing and those kinds of things. So I think it's getting better. But yeah, mostly racism that we would encounter now has more to do with like invisibility and lack of representation um, and just this feeling of like not belonging there at all. That's more of a a palpable thing than actually like out and out racism. Um, Right now, today uh, in comedy, it's the fifth year anniversary Mm. of Robin Williams mm. passing. Mm. I know you mentioned him earlier in the mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like knowing him when you were coming up through the ranks? Well, he was really he was really special. He owned this comedy club that he was like a secret partner on called the Holy City Zoo that I lived across the street from. So he would ride his bike from Marin over on the open mic nights. And he would usually go on at the end. Then we had this thing like we were all young and you know we were all like in our early 20s and uh, we lived all around the comedy club. So, like, I lived on one block, and then um, Pat Oswald lived on the next block over with uh, Brian Posehn. And there's all these comics that lived in that neighborhood, and Karen Garrett was around there. And we all uh, would go to the Holy City Zoo at the end of the night and watch comics, like, watch ourselves and watch other people. Just We would just laugh and make fun of each other. And uh, so Robin was part of that. And so it's weird that he's not here. You know, it's, st- it's still kind of like... Did that happen? I don't know. I don't know. What was what was so special about him to you personally? Like how he treated you? He was always just really. I mean, he was really complimentary um, about you know our comedy and my comedy, and you know that that like you you know for to get like a compliment from him was just like meant everything you know because it's just like it's work. You know, he's, yeah. he's still in San Francisco. He's at our open mic. When we think about like open mic, <laughs> that's crazy. You know, like he's just at our open mic and he's like closing our open mic. Like that's like crazy. But he would be there and you know just hanging out um, at the at the high level of, of Morgan yeah, Mindy. Yeah, he would be closing open mics. Well, yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know this is like after Morgan Mindy, so this would oh. probably be around um, yeah, like Mrs. Doubtfire or like around that time, like nineties. Yeah, so like he was just around. I mean, he was just like. 2000s, 90s, I mean, yeah, 90s. This would be like mid-90s, late-90s. I mean, he was just a guy that was there, but he was very, I don't know, he was just so generous to, he, you know, I think there was a part of him that felt guilty about his uh, 
success. So really? if you would like like give comics money, like if somebody had like you know a a bad divorce, he would like give you like all this money, like or if you were losing your kids or something like going on in your personal life, he was just like very fast to just give people money. I Did think, he ever help you out? Not financially, but just being around. And then I got to do comic relief like in 1996, which was really great, really great. Um, but, you know, it was just amazing that he was just there and he was just part of this scene that was like all these open micers, basically. I mean, we would we were probably like more like openers and middles and like country headliners. We would like headline like on like Monday to Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that level. But it, it still meant a lot to have him around. Him giving out money, did people, you ever feel, start to take advantage of that? I don't think so. I okay, think good. because it was just like... He was just so generous. And also, they were just, everybody was his friend, too. It wasn't um, like, and I think he was smarter in that way. Like, it wasn't like, you know, I'm going to, going to like be taken advantage of. It wasn't really like that. Um, it, it was just, it, he was just very generous. Wow. It was cool. Yeah, I interviewed him a couple of times. It seems so cool nice. Guy. It's just a very, like, very, like, uh, you see him on stage, he's mm-hmm. one way. And when he's off stage, he's very, just calm. Low key. Low, Low key. key. Really kind of shy, you know, and but would laugh like a funny guy and he was fun. But also just just not, you know, like that sort of big star that people think about. It wasn't that. It wasn't it wasn't that at all. Hmm. He was just a normal kind of guy. Who who'd you look up to when you were coming up in comedy? Like because I know a lot of times if a comedian's big, everybody tries to, oh, let me emulate emulate them in some way but who was the comic you looked up to oh well the very beginning it was janine garofalo we all just wanted to be janine like from like 91 to like this solidly 99 everybody all of us girls wanted to be janine and and janine wanted to be laura laura keitling uh-huh. <laughs> like so it was like we were all kind of like sort of emulating each other wanting to be each other we all had like very pale skin and like very red lipstick, and it was like really that kind of like Doc Martin's um, life. Uh, but yeah, she was she was like all of our. We were like all so into her. You're considered a legend now. That's good. In the no, yeah. it's great. When you hear that word, what do you think? Like you're a legend in comedy. Well, I like it. I mean, I think it's good. <laughs> I think it's good. Like it's good because then, um, and it's like the one industry in within the industry, one one place within um, entertainment where being older is a real asset, especially for a woman um, in comedy. I mean, that's what Joan Rivers would always say. She's like, "Oh, they're always gonna want your kid." They're always gonna want you. Oh. So I mean, I think that's nice. I think that's good because um, a lot of actresses like you don't see them again. Like you, you, yeah. you don't see them like after like their twenties. You don't see them again until maybe they're in their fifties or sixties. Maybe you see them, but not really either. What's it, feel, what's it feel like when these you know uh, comedians come up to you now? Going, oh, Margaret, I watched you growing up. You're, you're I love who it. I look. Isn't I that love really it. cool? It's great. I mean, I think it's really nice. And I think it's really like, I mean, it's really inspiring. And I think, I, you know, I'm like, well, I'm just really glad that, you know, you got to uh, be inspired and do this because it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful experience to be in comedy. I mean, it's hard sometimes, but it's really fun. Have you ever been to a point in your career where you were like, it's not going well, I'm going to give up? Did you ever reach that point? I don't know. Like, I think it was more, I don't think that I could though. Like, I mean, I I think I would always do sets. Like, I think the thing about it is that comedy is maybe in acting. Maybe sometimes you're just like, I can't, I don't want to go on any more auditions. I just can't. 
not face another pilot season <laughs> again. You know, you're just like, no, no, stop the pain. I know, but comedy is like it's not like the grind like that. You know, there, there's a difference, like because comedy is hard to do, so it's not as like a thing of like not everybody can can do it. Not because like a lot of people can be actors. But a lot of people can't be comics. What's so funny that you say that is about when I started to get established in comedy, Mm -hmm. I would go to castings. Mm. And before, they would be like, oh, you're a host. And go ahead, read the lines. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, I saw you at the Laugh Factory. I saw you at the comedy. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's the most respected thing you can do. Yeah. In Hollywood, like casting people go nuts because yeah. they know not everybody can do that where right. a lot of people can act, like you said. And I yeah. didn't know that. I was on the set of Modern Family in his heyday mm-hmm. and they knew I did stand up. One of them showed a club and they were like, oh, how do you do that? Yeah, it's And hard. this was Ty Burrell and all yeah. these guys. And I'm like, you're on the biggest show in yeah. the world right now. Yeah, but it's different. It's like, because comedy is so specialized and and it's hard to do. And, and, so, and, and also we don't do it necessarily to... Um, become famous like we just do it because we love it and we just have to and all of our friends are comics and it's just kind of like we just have to I mean I have to do comedy because I if I don't do it like every couple of days like I don't I don't I forget or I'm like what am I doing like yeah. <laughs> or I get real nervous yeah what what what's the big bit you're working on now is there something that you you've been going up trying to nail down right now well right now I'm trying to justify spending all of this money on Equinox and Soul Cycle because I belong to both <laughs> So you got to quit now. Uh, well, I did quit. Oh, you did I, quit. I quit. Okay. But now, like, I didn't realize, like, I didn't, we didn't know where our money was going. And so, because I, I mean, it was expensive, especially SoulCycle. It was like, to me, it was going to some, like, you know, Megan Rapinoe in the sky. Like, I didn't know who was getting that money, but I thought it was, like, some kind of aspirational lesbian with a really good body and a lot of, like, nice things to say, a lot of affirmations. So, um, you know, and so I'm trying to like work on this bit. That's all about that. It's I love, hard. you know, what's interesting and I, they, they have freedom of speech, you know, and I think a lot of times people forget about the other side of freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. You know, like if somebody says something gets in trouble mm-hmm. or you find out where the money's going to mm-hmm. his side would be like, well, you know, I look at what I've done for everybody else, mm-hmm. and, but you endorse that. That's your side. That's your freedom of speech. You did mm-hmm. what you want to do. I hate where only people look at freedom of speech from one side because if I don't like what you're doing, I have mm-hmm. the freedom of speech yeah. to say, no, I don't want to support you. But people have a problem with the second side of freedom of yeah. speech. And this is both sides. I don't want to, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, uh, like in the middle, like mm-hmm. whether you're a Democrat, Republican, if you're talking politics, both mm-hmm. sides do it, but you have to say you have a freedom of speech on both sides. Yeah. We have a right to complain if we don't like something. Exactly. And, and, and boycott against it. Well, I mean, it, it's like what's great is now we know because we didn't know before. We had no idea. And those businesses, especially like, you know, Equinox and SoulCycle in particular, there is like that is the most gay male and lesbian form of working out that costs. That's the biggest part of our income goes to these businesses, which we just assume are part of owned by gay people. I don't know why I got that. Nobody said it was owned by gay people. I mean, people. that's almost like $400 a month. 250 yeah. for the gym membership, 150 for a spin like a month. You just, you you don't even understand how much money that is. It's a lot. Yeah. It's like a, it's like rent. Yeah. So it's really, it, it, that's why I think people were so horrified because those businesses are so gay friendly and so liberal leaning. You think this is actually like so, odd. So if he goes, if he goes, well, I mean, you see, yeah, maybe doing a dinner for Trump, but 
look at what I've done for, I've hired a bunch of gay people. I'm very yeah. accepting of gay mm-hmm. people in my place. Yeah. Why are you taking that out on me for throwing a dinner for Trump? Yeah, it's weird. It's like, well, I think it's more just like we didn't know. And then maybe if we had some understanding of it, you know, and it's it's like, we don't know a lot of things about where things are, what companies own what, and, you know, all the things that happen behind the curtain of, like, invest- investors and that's a big money stuff. We just don't know. So it's good to know. I think that's now more that we have to have an understanding of that. Now, you have a lot of tattoos. I do. I, I want to talk about what was your first tattoo and why'd you get it? Uh, my first tattoo is actually very big. Um, it was my stomach and back entirely done by uh, Ed Hardy, Don Ed Hardy, who uh, tattooed a lot of members of my uh, extended family, all the people that worked at my parents' bookstore, all the gay and lesbian kids that were like around me growing up. Um, so they were all getting full body tattoos in this this late seventies, early eighties, and so I was around. So them a this lot. was before Ed Hardy was Ed Hardy. Yeah, I mean he um, he had uh, sort of already kind of been established as as that you know that name, of course. Um, but his his style of tattooing is really like well known because of the the clothing brand and uh, all of that. But it's uh, it's very you know he's a very very important tattooer and he's a really great guy. How old were you when you got your first tattoo? I think about thirty. Okay. Yeah, so a little oh, bit so later. Oh, so you were, okay. A you didn't get it when you were like 15. No, a little bit later. But I always knew that I was going to have like a full body suit. I mean, I have pretty much a body suit, but I don't, it's not all connected um, in that traditional way. But he did the very beginning of it, which is like a very, very big, big part What's of your it. most meaningful tattoo? You know, none of them have any meaning, which is really, it's, it's unfortunate that I never even assign meaning to any of them. They're all just fun things. I have a love of tattooing. I have a lot of good friends who are tattooers, and most of them just tattooed things on me, and I didn't really even think so about you don't, it. So you don't come in and say, I want this. You're like, oh, whatever you feel like doing today. <laughs> Go I for kind it. of had some ideas. You know, there, there's um, uh, St. Teresa on my back, which I, because I was excited because I'd just come back from Rome and I'd seen the Bernini, and, you know, I, I, I really wanted that. But uh, other stuff is just kind of dumb. Like, I have, like, the presidents on my kneecaps. It's just dumb. <laughs> it's just stupid just to have, the you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. It's, it's just, just chilling on your knees, huh? It's dumb. Is, that, is there a reason for that? No, no, it's so stupid. It's just stupid tattoos. Like, if you have a whole bunch of them, then you just start getting stupid ones. <laughs> so if you could take one away then, which one? The knees? The no, pre- I actually like those. I don't think I don't think I would take away any of them, any of them because I love everybody that tattooed me, and they all represent a really fun day or a fun weekend that we spent doing this. You know, whether it's in San Francisco or New York or LA, and so that that's. I mean, my my tattoos are really more just about the tattooers and the people that I love. Okay, so are you on tour right now? What are you working on? I am. I'm on tour. Um, I'm all over the place. Uh, I'm going to um, Montreal Pride, this big Pride show on Friday. And then uh, Saturday, I'm going to be in Rochester, Washington, which is kind of a far place to go. Um, But I do a monthly show at uh, Largo in LA. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, which is fun. And um, yeah, I'm always out there uh, doing shows. So. What comedians do you like watching right now? Now, um, I love Tig. Tig Nataro yeah. is so funny. I'm going to do her show uh, next week, actually, next Sunday. Yeah, so I go to Montreal and then I go to um, Washington and then I come back on Sunday to do Tig's show. Okay, so I want to end up with a couple of first questions because it's the first time you're on this show. Yeah. Uh, first time 
Uh, first celebrity crush. That's the first. First celebrity crush. Yeah. Uh, probably Mr. Goodbody. You know, the guy that wears the unitar that has all of the organs? Because I was just really fascinated. It's like, oh, look at all those. And I was always looking for a penis, but I never saw one. Because it was all like no skin. No but it skin, was, yeah. You, none of that. But yeah. it was all like his like organs. I was like, oh my God. I just, I don't know if it was a crush so much, but I just wanted to see him, which I think is what a crush is. Yeah, you, that's like right. Like you want to see him. Okay. And I wanted to see him a lot. Okay. First concert you ever went to? The Go-Go's uh, at the um, Greek Theater in San Francisco. First time you ever got in a fight. Like a fist fight. A you- fist fight. Um, ooh, I, well, I think I was probably in like third grade, so like eight or or nine. It was another, it was a Korean girl. Um, her, I think her name was Hyun, Hyunjin. And we really fought. Like, I really, she didn't, I, didn't, I don't think anything will like really happen. We didn't really get in trouble, but we were like kind of punching like up to the school bus. And then she kicked and then the school bus do- doors closed on her feet. So she never got me because it closed right on her feet. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. so, so it was like eight years old or something. First time you knew you were famous. Oh gosh, um, I don't know. I think I was. Oh, you know what? It was. It was in L.A. Times, and it was this like in the beginning of the year. It was like who to watch, and it was like this column. So it had me and Leonardo DiCaprio. Stop it! <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, I'm famous. And he was, and I was like, who's that? We didn't even know. <laughs> we didn't. That was so long ago. We didn't know who Leonardo DiCaprio was. Wow, that's how long ago. Wow. First car you ever had. The first car was a Buick LeSabre. Um, it was very old, uh, and it was very large. And it went, it's got like eight miles to the gallon. And it died really badly on, um, it, like, the whole, like, transmission blew up. And that smell, you know, and all the clouds of smoke come out. It's like so, it's it's when I smell it, sometimes you'll be out, like, on the freeway and you smell it. It's so gross. Oh. But I, I remember that smell. What are you, like, uh, binge-watching right now? Or, like, what what what's a guilty pleasure you like doing? A guilty pleasure? Well, I like those, like, ID murder shows. I oh. like any kind of, like, any kind of murder show I love. I can watch, Why do like, you love, I love it, it blows my mind why people like these, but it scares me. It's I, scary, but it's also, like... It's so creepy and weird, but it's also like you kind of know what's going to happen. Like, it's always like they do the recreation and you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen. And it's just kind of like, it's weird how people are so predictable and they're like evil. So I I do enjoy that. The last one I watched was like um, online murders or something. It was a murder online. People (laughs) people getting uh, like catfished or whatever and they get killed. That's scary. It's real scary. It's real scary. Oh no! Like I, I'm scared. To, I mean, the world is so crazy right now. Yeah. Like every everything that's going on, you just got to watch yourself. It's even like when I do shows at these. I was at Levity Live. Like, do I meet people after the show? Do I not meet people after the show? You're like, you're, you're thinking about everything now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. just, it's a scary time. Yeah, it's a scary time. All right, and your podcast is out. Get it on yes. iTunes. And iTunes every- or anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's called The Margaret Cho. And your website is Margaret Cho. MargaretCho.com. There you go. All right, everybody, thank you so much for stopping thank by. Thank you. Everybody listening, make sure you, you subscribe, rate, and review. It's The Michael Yo Show. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. 